Hello and welcome to episode three of the Mild Mannered Army podcast. Once again, a disclaimer, I know it's not really a podcast. I know that the only episode that you're listening to is some kind of psychotic episode whereby I am labouring under the delusion that you are in fact listening, which I'm fairly sure you're not, which means that I'm talking to myself. But listen, whatever, let's not get bogged down in that. It's a potential minefield. This evening's episode, I don't know why I said this evening's episode. It's not evening as I record this introduction, and it may not be evening where you are. So let's try that again. This episode features a conversation between myself and the frankly fabulous ex-Flamingo Mr James Cook, who, along with his brother Jude and drummer Kevin, were responsible for one of the great lost albums of the Britpop era, Plastic Jewels. Terrific album, and they were a, a, a great band. And James and I talk about all sorts of things. We touch on his book, Memory Songs, uh, which is going to be out on Unbound on May the 17th. Uh, Memory Songs, a personal journey into the music that shaped the 90s. So we talk about the memory songs that James covers in that book. Uh, we talk about the life and times of the Flamingos. We talk a fair bit about uh, Suede, thanks to the presence of Simon Gilbert in an earlier incarnation of the Flamingos, The Shade, which is a Either a great name for a band or a terrible name for a band. I can't decide. Should have asked James, really. And along the way, we, we touch on some of the other music that we both love, including uh, a big shout-out, as nobody says anymore, to the Triffids. So, I hope you enjoy it. Please do uh, spread the word, and please do think about reading the blog to www.themildmanneredarmy.com and you can find me on the Twitter, at mildmanneredmax. So without further ado, here's my conversation with James. Right, well, listen, th- thanks very much for uh, agreeing to, to chat to me. Um, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's great. No, I'm, uh, I'm very happy to um, chat about the old days, you know, and flingos and, and, and all that sort of stuff. Good. Well, I, I wonder maybe if I can start, um, not not with the old days, I wonder if I could start with uh, the today days, uh, because I'm, I'm, I'm really interested in your, your book which I think is due out on the, the 17th of May, and it's it's called, and I'll make sure I get this right, Memory Songs, a, a personal journey into the music that shaped the 90s. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, that's right, yeah. So I, I did a little bit of uh, rooting around, um, and I, I found some bits and pieces that you tweeted about the book and a couple of things online as well. And, um, yeah, I wonder if you would maybe like to say something about what the book's about and why you decided to write it? Yeah, well, it, it's actually um, it's quite a hard sell, <laughs> so uh, the pitch can get quite sort of rambling. But what it is <laughs> basically is a memoir of the eighties and nineties told through favourite or significant records. So 
um, and um, so, so you know, you've got a chapter. There's a Bowie chapter. There's a John Barry chapter. There's the Beatles, and then moving into the nineties, you've got you know chapters on what I call the other the other Britpop. I call it in the book, which is the sort of the glamier side of it, really sway pulp, uh, manics, which you know we know that they weren't aren't a Britpop band as such, but it's odd how it, how now they seem to be sort of lumped in. But at the, at the time, they, they very much stood alone. They sort of fitted into the umbrella of, of, of how me and my brother Jude sort of saw ourselves, our band. So in the book, you've got this all the music that fed into Britpop that era, the sort of early mid nineties, and you've also got the story of the band. You've got the story of, of my band, Flamingos, within that. So it's quite a sort of hybrid. Uh, it's, it's not the easiest sell, but um, I think uh, when you read it, it works as the, 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 what kind of pulls you through the, the sort of um, the, the, the kind of examination of, of the songs of those bands that I've, I've just mentioned is, is the story of the band Flamingos. It's, it's a classic. You know, we, we were from Hitchin, which is um, a little town. It's about 30 miles out of London. So we did the classic, you know, go to go into the big city to seek your fame and fortune, that kind of thing. So it has this this thing, I think, that's quite universal for a lot of people, whether they're in bands or, or what they did, you know, to maybe go from a small town environment to, to, to the city that's close by and try to, you know, make their make, make a mark on whatever they wanted to do. So it's all it's all in there. It's all in the book somehow. And so just to spin back to what you said, why did I write it? Yeah. Well, think, I mean, we, me and my brother now, we, we, we're full-time writers. We're not, we, we kind of, we don't make music anymore. And that's sort of part of the past really now. So, so this is the sort of how it's turned out really, our creative outlet. He's a, a novelist and he does, he does a lot of reviewing now as well. And uh, so I had this, uh, I mean, I, I was I was trying to have a sort of crack of fiction, but I had this idea for the book, and, and it just seemed that like there's a really good story there, you know, because it probably was is an unrepeatable moment, cultural moment, Britpop. Um, I don't really see another uh, sort of big youth movement coming. Um, happy to be surprised if one happens, um, but it was sort of the last to quote. Uh, John Harris, you know the last party, as it were. Um, although I take, I take, I sort of take umbrage. I, I contend that in the book because if you're that age now, if you're sort of sixteen and getting into music now, you wouldn't want someone telling you, hey, you know, this was the last party. It's like, you know, I don't know if you remember the old lags from the sixties saying, oh, you should have been there in the sixties, man. You know, <laughs> you know, that was the time. And so, well, hang on, I've got my own music. You know, I've got, I've got these amazing bands. So I don't, I. I seriously don't know what it's like for, for, for a sixteen-year-old now. They might be uh, completely mad into into music, but I don't know. I've got friends with kids, sort of uh, older kids, and they say it's not it's not the same. You know, it just doesn't have that same sort of place that it did in our lives. No, I, th- I think you're right, James. I, I, I think I, I agree with all of that. I think the difference with Britpop was, I think it was the last great British movement, you know, kind of subculture, pop culture, pop art movement. I don't think you'll get anything that big again. I think there are still little, you know, gangs and gaggles of kids who are into grime or goth or pop or soul or R&B, 
but there will never be something that quite captured the 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 moment like Britpop did. I don't yeah. think. Yeah, just the shared the shared experience. Yeah, yeah. and part of the, and, and the fact that you know the internet happened just around the time of just after that time. That that was such a massive thing because then the, it wasn't. Uh, there weren't uh, these, these sort of outlets for shared experience anymore, really, in the same way. Everything became fragmented. You know, top of the pops. Amazing to think of what power it had back then. You know. Can't imagine a show like Top of the Pops being being watched by you know the country, you know, and, and I think once once everything started to unravel at around sort of ninety five towards the end of the millennium, you didn't get the sort of infrastructure that the apparatus to to have something as, as big as that. I mean, Oasis, I mean, Noel's on record saying, you know, they, they were the, they were the last really big pre internet band. It's quite amazing that to do, to do what they did. Uh, Well, that's right. The documentary that came out last year, the year before, Supersonic. The other significant thing, I think, about Britpop, about people like you and Jude and Kevin and Noel and Liam and various others, it was the last time that kids from Hitchens or Burnage or, you know, the east end of Glasgow, in the case of people like Travis or what have you, it was the last time that working class kids ever owned that mass pop cultural space as well. I think that was really significant. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I agree. You know, um, it, it was, it was. I mean, there's a lot about it in, in um, about this sort of, you know, lack of diversity now in publishing, um, and it's been going on in music, you know, for the last sort of twenty, twenty-five years. But yeah, it, it, you know, it's sort of across the board in the creative arts. Um, it's the, 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 have to say, you know, the kids with privilege and money—they're the ones that, that are landing record deals and have been. So the likelihood of a new, you know, David Bowie or Kate Bush or someone like that, or Noel and Liam discount Kate Bush because she's had a different background, but um, you know, it's it's, un, it's unlikely now. Um, but I think I think yeah, with, with Britpop, it was it was a it was a level um, level playing field. And just to spin back to the book slightly, what, what I sort of you know, memory songs, obviously big, big um, emphasis on the song, which was just the, the, the unit of the work, you know, and it was, I think, I think Suede started it in their interviews, they were banging on about songs, you know, it's yeah. the song, the song, the song, and this suddenly, being the press really picked up, picked up on it, and it was, you know, this, you know, no amount of sort of frippery or whatever, will, you know, if there's a deficiency in the tuning department, then you just weren't going to get away with it. You know, a, a lot of bands, they come from the slightly sort of more, you know, you know, sort of noisy bands, noise bands like Sonic Youth and Mudhoney. It was more about riffs and noise. And then suddenly, not so suddenly, I think it really started with Stone Roses. You've got this emphasis on the song, you know, um, and then it became not just a song, but a song that sounded British, quote unquote. Yeah. So you're sort of competing with the best British Writers of the last 20 years, you know, Ray Davis, um, John Lennon, David Bowie. So, um, yeah, it was, all, it was all to play for then. And that, that was good because we were so serious. <laughs> we, we were so serious about making a record or making records that we spent a lot of time, uh, trying to learn the craft, you know. So we were sort of ready. It's that old thing of, the, you know, your debut album isn't, isn't your debut album. You've got five sort of demo tape albums that passed. 
So we 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 had um, but we we lacked actually live experience. That's that was one thing that really kind of helped us back. But we had a lot of studio and recording experience, so the songs weren't really a problem. Um, yeah, the thing the thing I think what we really should have done was. Um, do some gigs out of town, <laughs> which, uh, which I remember. I did, this is in, in the book. When we get into the Britpop area of the book, and I, I think it probably will be interesting to to anyone who's interested in that time, is that, that we were around um, a lot of those bands that they came to prominence, and we knew um, Elastica's sort of set up and their management. And they'd insisted that Elastica just do, do out-of-town shows that they go out and they do, don't do any gigs in London because they, they knew it would just be pounced upon, they'd be reviewed, and if they did a ropey gig, uh, it would it would damage their career. And this crazy power that the press had then. Uh, and they did. I mean, they did do that. I think they did about 20 gigs, but it was it was enough. And I saw them powerhouse, something like that, 93, supported by the auteurs. And they were a pretty good live band, you know, but you could tell that, They'd only just really sort of started getting it together, but it was it was enough, and we we didn't have that live experience really till about a year in. By which point it was sort of too late. <laughs> we did it. I think we did a we really toured '94. We did about a hundred gigs straight off the bat, and then we came back to London and we did. I think we headlined Garage, and that was a great gig. You know, that was art right learn how to play live but by that point we've had we've had some easy live reviews and it's and as i say it's amazing how how you know how much power the press wielded you know uh, back then and i was, I was interested actually to ask um so what was your sort of background at that time were you were you going to Geeks yeah. Bands well, I, I think I was. I was. Pro I'm probably about the same age as you. I was born '73. Okay, now I'm a bit. I'm a bit older, '68. Bit older, right? So, I, I, you know, I was. I was kind of the right age for Britpop, in, in as much as I was old enough to have a little bit of disposable income from student grants and student loans. I was still young enough to be very much, you know, going out to gigs and buying records. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, so I was able to very much, you know, live. That, that whole experience and that whole time. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I definitely saw uh, the Flamingos. I would come down to London as well. You know, I can remember travelling down on the overnight bus uh, to come down to London, you know, on a Friday night from university with my mate, Chris. You know, we at that point were absolutely convinced that we were the second coming of Maud. And uh, which is which is just so ridiculous now. But you know, we would come down to London and 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 we'd go to Camden and Carnaby Street, and uh, I've I've got a, a quite a clear memory of, of seeing the flamingos. But goodness knows where or who was supporting or what. Um, uh, right. So you did see it. You did see yeah, it. I saw you. Yeah. yeah. Okay, but but you can't remember if it's London or. It would definitely have been London. It was definitely somewhere in London, and it would have been. Yeah. It would, yeah, I mean, well, Disappointed had definitely, Disappointed had come out, for sure, because I've I've still got my copy of Disappointed, it's sitting here beside me right now. Um, oh, I'd, 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 I'd seen that reviewed in Melody Maker or Enemy, I'd bought that, um, I'd been kind of a, a bit blown away by that, to be honest, and I'd been a bit blown away by um, one of the B-sides, London's Laughing. Um, yeah. And I remember thinking, right, yes, yes, this, this is... Yeah, this this is absolutely my kind of thing. Um, Great. I mean, we yeah, we, I think we must have been poring over the live pages of the NME, and we would have seen, 
you know, whoever was playing that particular weekends, and then we would book, you know, the sort of overnight bus. Yeah, so yeah, I, I wrote a piece about Britpop on the on the blog called um, "A Tidal Wave of Joy," and and that is my Britpop experience. Is that it was exactly that? It was a tidal wave of joy. Uh, right, I have to look at that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, I wonder. Yeah, it, it was an exciting time. I remember, you know, it was. It was. Um, there was this feeling, especially in Camden, it has to be said that it was. It was that this was the sort of centre, the sort of the focus. Um, that it wasn't Manchester or Seattle. That it it it, 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 it had come to Camden, you know. Um, however, sort of fleeting that was. But yeah, I mean, the, the thing. Just, just spin back to the press thing, actually. Because yeah. Because I'm always because when, when people have heard of us, I was thinking, well, how did you how did you hear of us? You know, was it because we didn't have you know, a huge amount of coverage and it, and it took um, a long time for us to even get a tiny feature in the enemy. Um, what we had was a really good PR. We had a really brilliant PR, which was Hall or Nothing. Yeah, and they were, it's Kathy, St. Louis Bear, who's an absolute star. Um, and she was doing press for Radiohead and Stone Roses. And she managed to, managed to get us press everywhere in the UK and that that was the really exciting thing as well it sounds like I'm contradicting what I said about Camden the thing was is that when Britpop took hold that we were able to go because we, we, we toured and we'd done radio and we've got local press we were able to go right around the country where people where there were fans at a grassroots level um, and that that was a, a lot of that was down to Cathy at Hall or Nothing she, she just got this I've, I've got it here, actually. I dug out some of the interviews. Um, it's the phone book size press pack, just, just from sort of regional press. Again, a sign of the times. You know, you, you wouldn't have to do that now. <laughs> oh, that's right. With, 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 with the internet. Um, anyway, I mean, that, that, was, that, was what, that was the sort of setup set that we had. we had. We had brilliant PR and a record label that didn't know what he was doing, basically. I'll tell you what's funny about that, James, is that I've, I've spoken to... Harold from Elka um, and Patrick Duff from Strange Love in the last little while. Um, okay. You know, two two bands who kind of skirted around the periphery of, of Britpop, yeah. you know, and they tell a very similar tale of just feeling like, you know, the, the, the labels maybe weren't um, as supportive or as nurturing, I guess, at the risk of sounding a bit, you know, soft about it, and and they just didn't feel like, you know, some of the things that would really have helped them to make that next step were there for them. Yeah, I think I think that was, you know, you you either got lucky with your your label or you didn't. I think, and and, and, it, and you know, we we didn't. We were slightly older, I suppose, than some of the some of the, the bands, only by a few years. But we still we had no sort of illusions that it was a business, you know. And um, but it was very much that that uh, you know, if you didn't hit big on your first record, then you were out the door, you were dropped. So it was a real kind of sudden death scenario, really. We had uh, again, this is all in the book. We we had a um, a deal with Electra. Which was all going to happen, um, and they were dotting the eyes on the contract, uh, and the deal fell through. Um, Electra pulled its operation out of the UK, and what happened? 
and then and then we had we, we'd had we've had some other sort of majors interested in it and um but that we'd let that sort of cool off so there is one label left which is this small indie uh with no real experience of marketing and guitar group so we kind of signed on their, their badly photocopied line <laughs> and, and it was basically all downhill from there uh, which, is, which is a comic moment there's some comic value for, i mean it's all 25 years ago now so i can't sort of laugh at it but at the time it was it was your 20s you know it was kind of well this is this is our lives really we, we just kind of jacked everything in to do this and um, you know, we had to had to make it work somehow. I mean, a lot of bands at, at, at that time, the Long Peaks were signed to Electra, and they'd done an album, and and they were stuffed basically. They they had to can the album, and I think they got picked up by Mother, which was U2's label, mm-hmm. um, and which sort of saved them. And they did have hits, but it, it really, it probably, I mean, they probably thought this is it, we're, we're completely screwed, and and. In a sense, they probably would have been in that first vanguard of the sort of Brit, Britpop groups. Yeah. I think it took them a bit later. So, I mean, they got they had hits and stuff. They did all right, but uh, you know that that was it, it, it was it was such a, it was such a compressed and intense period. I, I seem to remember that not only were the the labels um, sort of out for themselves and just out out to make money. Yeah, we accepted that, but also. Uh, and I try to get this over in the book, but the bands weren't really friends at all. There was there was a lot of rivalry yeah. because because we were all competing from the same column inches. There are only a certain amount of features that could be um, that, that could be awarded every 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 week, and that there's this sort of civil war of jealousy between the bands, and then the journalists who are vicious and partisan. <laughs> one eye on future careers, you know, yeah. uh, all with this enormous power. I mean, when you think, if you, if you look at the, the sort of publishing world, book, book publishing now, there are no, there's no such thing as a hatchet job review because people just don't want to get their hands dirty with that anymore. They just, they know they're going to meet them at a party or something. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, but with, 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 the, with the journalists, the journalists at the time, there was a real us, they didn't associate with bands. Bands, it was they had the power, you know, they had the typewriters. And it, an insane situation, really. I, I recently did a, um, a QA sort of interview with, do you know David Stubbs? Yeah, yeah, that's right, the journalist. Yeah, yeah, I know him. Yeah, yeah. Well, he, he's, he's, he's written a really great book on the Britpop period, which was um, called 1996. And uh, there's a subtitle, but it's 1996, and it's really probably the best book on. on the 90s um, and it was really interesting talking to him because he's a staff writer the melody maker enormous amount of power they had but when you when I met him and he had this he used to do a column called Mr. Abusing I don't know if you remember that that's Mr. right Mr. Agreeable that's right anyway, Mr. Agreeable yeah that's right Mr. yeah which was which was very funny he's a very funny writer uh, but then you meet David Stubbs in person and he's a lovely guy you know he's just sort of couldn't be more different from his persona. So a lot, of, a lot of journalists had um, had their persona. I mean, he didn't really have that. I think he was just um, he just wasn't that interested in, in, in Britpop as such. He was more into electronic music. But, um, but yeah, I mean, digressing away from from um, from, from from sort of um, the music here a bit. But the, yeah, the journalists. I mean, there, there were some really great ones like Stubbs and Simon Reynolds, and Chris Roberts, who could really write. But there was a sort of sub 
strata below that who really had it in for the bands and they could decide whether a band had a career or not, you know. That's true. Um, it's, 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 it's very difficult to imagine that now. I mean, it just it just it couldn't happen, really, yeah. Yeah, because you could say, uh, I mean, there's no press to sob, really. So I'll just, I'll just get a YouTube channel and uh, I'll do it like that, you know. Um, that's how people do it now. So it's a very, very... Um, very interesting time. Um, not not a comfortable one if you weren't in that sort of top tier. You know, no, uh, I can imagine. Well, look, I wonder. One of the things that I found online as I've been uh, preparing myself um, was a little sort of video trailer for the book um, that, that I think Unbound, you know, and, and you have put together, where you kind of talk. Oh, right, yeah, 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 you kind of talk about the book and what's going on, but. What really caught my eye was, and I had to go back and watch it maybe sort of five or six times, is about ten seconds in, uh, as you're talking, there's, you, your voice is kind of uh, underneath some images of record sleeves. And so I've, I've gone through that with a sort of uh, forensic uh, analysis. And some of the covers are really interesting. And some, they're, they're, some of these are, are records that really mean a lot to me. Um, and some of them, you know, would kind of leave me cold. But I, I wanted to just see if I'd, if I'd maybe pick them up right and maybe get you to say something about these bands. So yeah, yeah. one of them is, and you've already mentioned them, was Suede. And you clearly, like me, see Suede as kind of ground zero for Britpop. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, the Drowners was, was, the, was the sort of, that was the kind of, um, that was the big bang, really. Um, we had a special interest in Suede because Simon Gilbert, Simon Gilbert was our drummer before he joined Suede. Oh. Um, yeah, so this is how the book starts. So this is the sort of hook, and, and I, I, I'm talking about Metal Nicky a lot in the book because that, that was their sort of top of the pop steady. So that was sort of the hinge that Britpop, I think, sort of turned on. But the big bang was the drowners. So, so Simon... Um, I don't, I don't slag him off in the book because he's a lovely guy. Uh, which he, he sort of, he's sort of maintained that reputation for a long time actually. But it was true. He was, I mean, when he when he left band that we had, we were called the Shade um, before Flamingos. Um, but when he left the band, it was all pretty gentlemanly and suede. They weren't really going anywhere at that point. Um, the one thing that, that he had in front of us was um, a manager. And we were struggling to get any sort of gigs. And Simon worked at Yulu um, selling tickets. And he, the connection was um, Suede's manager was um, Ricky Gervais. That's right, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, bizarre coincidence. Uh, and... Um, and that was that was the connection, you know. And I think we we chatted about we. I remember conversations with Simon about about Sway talking about you know, and uh, we had a bizarre conversation about whether it should, should be the Suede or Swade. Um, anyway, so he um, he joined Swade. So we were still kind of you know chipping away. Suddenly, they splashed all over the melody, mate. You know, best new band in Britain. And then you just couldn't get away from Simon. Uh, you know, staring back at you from every newsstand. From the, quite extraordinary, the adulation that, that that Suede had. And even though we were, you know, we'd always been really serious about making making records, this was 
the sort of spur, the big bang for us. It's like, right, we better get a move on. We better, you know, look look what Simon's done. He's, he's gone and, uh, you know, joined the biggest band in the country. Um, yeah, well, for, for, for me, I, I, I can really clearly remember um, hearing Suede for the first time, you know, and what it did for me was it made me suddenly realise, because all of the bands I'd liked up until that point had been things from the past. They, 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 they were all bands from before me. You know, there were bands that my mum and dad liked. You know, my mum and dad were both original mods, you know, up here in Scotland. They, you know, so it was things like, yeah. obviously, the kinks and the small faces, but more importantly, a lot of black American uh, soul music. A lot okay, of that. Right. Um, and in fact, I, I was going to mention earlier, when I read the title of the book, you know, Memory Songs, I started thinking, well, you know, what, what sorts of memories are associated? And I started trying to think about you know, maybe the one song, if I, if I, you know, if you did a follow-up and you said, right, I'm going to invite people to share a memory song. So I have this really clear memory of having a friend called Paul Spaulding, whose nickname was Spud. And we were 12 years old and we went to Woolworths in the little town that I lived in. And between us, we had enough money to buy a seven-inch single. And we, yeah, which, we, sorry, which, which is the town? Oh, we lived in this little town uh, just outside of Edinburgh called Kirkcaldy. So it's in Fife. Okay. It's a tiny little town. Coal mining town. And I'd moved there from Edinburgh with my, my parents and my little brothers when I was quite young. And um, So we cobbled together this money. We bought this seven-inch single by Gary Moore. Now, I can't remember what the single was. Now, we brought And we, we thought we would share it. We would share this record. So we came back to my house, and I said to my mum and dad, look, we've, we've bought a record. And my dad said, well, great. What, what record have you bought? And, I showed him this record by Gary Moore, and really it had been Paul's idea. And my dad said, well, that's, that's fine. He said, but um, Paul, why don't you take that home? And he sort of packed Paul off, and he said, right, now, you, you come with me. And he took me, for some reason he had the record player in the bedroom at this point. And I don't know why, I think maybe we were decorating, I don't know. And the, the record player was in his bedroom, and he sort of sat me on the bed, and he went over to the record player, and he took out a piece of vinyl, and he put it on the turntable, and he lifted the needle, and... And it dropped the stylus on, and there was a hiss and a crackle, and then <clears throat> uh, my generation by the Who started. Um, oh wow! And, <laughs> and it, can't I, go back from that. Yeah, and I remember I can see really clearly even now. I mean, my dad's sort of 68, 69 now, and I can still see my dad then in his sort of thirties, his mid thirties, I guess, uh, pogoing, windmilling around his own bedroom. <laughs> You know, and I remember thinking, yep. But then, so, so all of my music was kind of backward looking. And, and then I heard Suede. And while Suede were very obviously backward looking, you know, in terms of the reference points, all of a sudden it became very clear that there were new bands that I could love. There were there was new music being made. So they were, they were like, like you, it was, it was so significant for me what Suede did. I just was blown away by them. That, that's absolutely, I mean, that, that's a great story. I mean, there's a couple of things like that in, in, in my book. Um, but that, I mean, a couple of things could have happened then, though, because when your dad played to you, my generation, you could have said, you know, this is your generation. So, yeah. You know, I, 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 I mean, the, 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 the sheer power of the music would, would probably be, be hard to sort of <laughs> overlook that. But, um, yeah, so, you know, maybe you were looking for, something that was you know current and that was that, that was yours that, that could be could be made and, and i think yeah if, if um 
if the Drowners came along at that, at that time, then it would, you know, it was probably the first, was the first record, really. Um, they were so far ahead of the game, I think. And I don't know, have you read Brett's book? Yeah, yeah, Cold Black Mornings, yeah, it's wonderful. Yeah, 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 no, it's, it's good, he's really good. I was trying to sort of see where they got it from, where, and I don't know how completely honest it's been, because I always assumed that a lot of that, a lot of the influences, Bowie and stuff, came from Justine Frischman. But I think, he, if he's being honest, he kind of invented it. He was kind of, and it was such, they were so startling in that time because it was almost like a career suicide move to do to, if you had to think of a cross between two bands or two artists in 92 it would have been the Smiths and David Bowie I think yeah it's almost like you know, cut your throat just have no chance of getting signed it really was it was fraggle it was the wonder stuff it was Carter <laughs> that's right you know, fraggle fraggle I don't think I've heard that word since There was there was a very um, almost a physical and violent celebration of Suede. I mean, I, I can remember going to see them on the the, the the first kind of nationwide tour. So the Drowners has probably just come out. They're, they're playing in a small venue in Edinburgh called the Venue, and I had turned up wearing a sort of green lamy shirt with a Morrissey T-shirt underneath. The place was packed and there's sweat falling from the ceiling and you know, Brett's on stage in a sort of chiffon blouse and it, it got ripped off of his body and I can remember I had never done anything like this before I, I was not, not a shy kid but I'd never done anything like this before I kind of jumped up onto the stage and took off my own shirt and presented it to Brett and he kind of put it on and within sort of you know within, within one song it too had been ripped to pieces, you know. Uh, I remember walking home, freezing cold, you know, making my way back to the train station and thinking, "That what was that?" You know, it, it was it was What's so that? fantastic. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I think that the, the, the people were ready for that. This, this is why. Uh, I mean, people were talking to Suede Mania before they got that front cover with yeah. Suede Mania, um, but it was that, that the reaction was very different to how. You know, people had, had been, I mean, the, the closest thing I think I could remember was, was, was hearing 
smells like teen spirit for the first time. It's, it's a student union. Um, uh, it was Glasgow actually. It was, um, my girlfriend was doing a doing a um, journalism degree, and it's in Queen Mary. Um, uh-huh. I think it's Queen Mary. Anyway, it was just it was just this room full of people going completely bananas to a record. Ah, oh, I haven't seen that for a while. And then and then when Suede came along, you got this added. Uh, this added thing of that they were sort of trying to be your worst sex symbols. So you've got this kind of old-fashioned pop star thing going on as well, which is really exciting. Um, And they just played it to the hill. I think, you know, Brett, it's funny when he says, you know, I I wanted to be be the drummer or whatever he says. (laughs) (laughs) If anyone was, was sort of, you know, born with a rock singer stamped on your forehead, you know, front man, you'll be in. Um, well, look, can I can I pick one more of the bands that appear in that little clutch of, of, yeah, of record yeah, covers? So you've you've mentioned them already now, Nirvana. Now, like like a lot of people from that kind of era, the, the kind of Britpop thing, you know, there was there was a bit of a re- rejection of kind of American cultural dominance, and so I, I had a sort of inbuilt aversion to Nirvana. But listening to something like. Um, and I, th- I think it's the sleeve for um, In Utero that, that, that appears in that little promo video. And yeah. it's funny because g- going back and listening to Teenage Emergency, um, I, I was taking notes this week, and here's what I wrote. Teenage Emergency is one of the great songs from the era. One of the things I love about it is that it allowed me to enjoy Nirvana without having to listen to Nirvana. <laughs> because it's, it, it's it's so I mean I, I don't know if that was conscious there's a great mix of very British possibly even very English references you know I can hear all the you know the, the kinks thing and I can hear the, the, the Bowie thing I can hear all of that but there's definitely that little bit of you know harder American kind of punk yeah. underneath there as well or have I completely misread the situation no that's absolutely spot on I mean that that is that is what um, what was there. That it's such a funny. I think I think what happened with flamingos is that we we did. And my own tastes have always been so Catholic that it kind of suffered a bit because I'd hear things that I liked and take them and wouldn't have a totally sort of you know coherent worldview on on what what you know I really really liked. I, I knew what I liked, but it just didn't always fit into one sort of narrow. Um, Sort of pocket, but yeah, de- definitely those sort of stop-start um, riffs at the start of um, that, that. That was when I when I listened to Teen Spirit. Um, that was that was half inch from, from from Teen Spirit. But then bizarrely, the sort of the, the yowls um, come from a Blow Monkeys record. Who <laughs> um, <laughs> so had been channeling Bart Bowler and Bowie for years? Of so course, there was that in there, and then suddenly it goes into you know you've got these descending lines, which I write a lot about in the book. Um, it's not everyone's thing, but there's quite a lot of not not kind of chin stroke in musical an- analysis, but kind of where that descending line came from from the Beatles and you know the Kinks actually, you know, and that's something something else. The, 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 the Beatles were influenced by the Kinks. I think everyone assumes the Beatles just drew it out from the air, but they were listening to the Four Tops and the Kinks, all of whom were using descending lines, you know. Okay. Um, so that that ended up in teenage emergency. But interestingly as well, in in the first suede songs there's there's quite a bit of grunge in there. Um, 
Yeah, it's 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 a it's it's not quite as clean as as you maybe as, as maybe your memory would lead you to believe. You know, it's it's not quite as yeah. as anti uh, anti punk or anti certainly that American punk as as maybe you would remember. Um, now here's here's something else that I I thought of. Um, um, I got to um, absent fathers, violent sons, and. Yeah, I interviewed. Uh, yeah, and I interviewed Mark Morris a while back. He'd, he'd come up here and he was doing a little sort of acoustic gig with Chris Helm over in another small Fife town, actually. And um, for some reason, he agreed to speak to me, and we we sat down, we had a chat. And I, one of my favourite songs in the Britpop era is uh, "Keep the Home Fires Burning" by the Blue Tones, because I love that line about you know um, my home is a war zone, I've no stomach for war. I think it's one of the I just think it's one of the great lines okay. in pop music. I just think it's lovely. And I spoke to him yeah, about nicely. about that, and he talked about having, you know, an experience, you know, at home when he was growing up with a not particularly positive male role model sort of entering the, the, the family home. Um, a similar thing can be heard when you listen to Violent Men by Marion, you know, and Jamie Harding talks. Oh, yeah, I remember that, yeah. Yeah, yeah you know, and he writes a lot about that. And then, you know, Absent Fathers, Violent Sons seems to be touching on similar themes about, you know, um, familial dysfunction. And I've, I've always wondered, you know, is the song um, autobiographical or is it just observational? Oh, no, very much so. Very much so um, autobiographical. I mean, that, that was one of Jude's. When, when, he, when he presented that song to me, it just knocked me out. I thought, wow. And that was one of the things that, that, that kind of threw people a bit because it, it was... A lot of people just assumed it was it was sort of like a, you know um, observational, or that it was some kind of piece of sociology or something. And it wasn't. It was it was from from our sort of background because we came from a divorced background. Um, and this is also in memory songs, and with a not particularly happy relationship with our stepdad. Yeah. Um, you know, my mum's uh, remarried. When we were teenagers, and this sort of added to the, the the general kind of you know sort of you know teenage angst for want of a better word. But it went deeper than that because there was a lot of sort of you know family um, division, and then my dad was working away. There was all that kind of thing, which is probably not as common back then as it is now. But this was going on, and Jude wrote this song, which is quite sort of spare, you know. Um, so you can read a lot of things into it and quite angry as well I don't know if he'd stand by that song in terms of what he said certainly musically I think he would and it was yeah it kind of it, it was it, again it was that schism that, that, that people um, sort of identified for the band is that are we, are we you know are we going to go down the more sort of sway the darker sort of side or are we going to be uh, more of the sort of you know um, jam sort of three piece Band that we had both things going on, <laughs> and it was quite on, on plastic jewels. It was quite hard to sort of. I think we just about pulled it off, you know. But it was it was still it was kind of dividing people where it, where it shouldn't have been. Um, so it was quite hard. So we had these pieces like Winter, which is even darker, and uh, and, and Absent Fathers, and then sort of more sort of you know things like like Scenester, which is just 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 a sort of rock song, you know. Um, but yeah, no, absolutely autobiographical uh, in that sense. And I think I still, I think it was underrated, you know, 
it's because uh, as I say, people people just thought he was trying to. We thought we were trying to be, you know, like it was a sort of documentary on 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 <laughs> sort of yeah. broken homes or something. Yeah. Like, well, come on, I don't know. That that was that was the. Um, I just I just want to quickly pick up on what you said about the records, uh, um, you know, that were, were sort of like laid out uh, in, in the promo, the unbound yeah. promo, because yeah, there's again talking of Catholic sort of um, tastes. They, you look at that, and it looks like a mixed bag, and it kind of is. Um, what, what happens in, in memory songs is that they're. they're uh, I, I wanted to avoid being too obvious, so there's no chapter on the Smiths, there's no chapter on T-Rex, say, you know, big, big influences on Britpop. And sort of go to be a bit more, just oblique, really. I mean, there's a band. Uh, do, do you remember the Triffids? Well, the it's, I've, I've got that name written down, because the, the, the Triffids album, Calenture, with... Um, Bury Me Deep in Love is, is one of my favourite albums of all time. So I was so oh, happy, fantastic. so happy to see the Triffids on that list. The Triffids were, were there because, because I did love them when I was sort of 16, 17, still love them now. Um, but they were, I wanted to pick a band that, that was a sort of critics band, a press band. And, and I write in memory songs that I bet that Noel Gallagher owned a copy of, of Born Sandy Devotion. Um, it's a wild guess, but I think at that time, everyone, all the Britpop musicians would have read the press week in, week out for the whole of the 80s. So all those groups had a, however subliminal, had some sort of effect on the sort of impulse towards Britpop. Um, it's a bit tenuous, but, um, but you know, I, I wanted to write about the truth. <laughs> I, I got away with it. Well, I, I, that that may well be the first uh, chapter that I turn to in that case. Yeah, I, I love the Triffids. Um, yeah, great it's writing. Weird, really weird, it's a weird thing because when I when I had the first meeting with Unbound, I, I thought the first thing that the, the, the publisher was going to say was, oh, you know, I really like all these. You've got David Bowie, you've got the Beatles, but can we cut the Triffids chapter? And the guy said, Oh, I love, he started talking about his favourite Triffids songs. So like, oh, right, okay. It's all right then. You know, I can relax. So and and you know there's a chapter on the Water Boys as well, which which, which don't in no sense or form fit into into Britpop. But what I was getting at was that pre um, before they went um, sort of semi-acoustic acoustic when uh, Mike Scott was was channeling um, uh, Patti Smith, The Clash, yeah. David Bowie. Um, and that was this sort of brief period that I was interested in, um, and that was a record that hit me when I was seventeen as well. As you can see, so so that's in there. Um, it's quite hard to keep a handle on the, these all these things because because it can be a point where, where it's not going to please everyone. People are going to um, you know say, "Well, look, this wasn't my thing at all," and that's fair enough. Um, but I was trying to get a handle on. The music that fed into to Britpop, but quite in a sort of personal, selfish way, really. My take on it, as I said, I, I could have. There could have been. There could have been a cracking chapter on the Smiths in there, but um, I just thought it was too obvious, you know. No, I think you're probably right. Now, listen, before before we uh, we bring this to a conclusion, there's there's a very silly uh, question that I want to ask you. So I've, I've mentioned to you before when we we spoke on the phone before we started uh, this conversation this afternoon about. 
that wonderful interview in um, The Melody Maker back in November 1995 where Kevin talks about how important it is to have good trousers. More, more oh, important yeah, to have yeah, good trousers than to eat. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> no, but what's... That, that, that story you told me that... that that has to be, that'd be great if you put that in. <laughs> yeah, well, but yeah, okay, That's well, I, 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 I try and put these things up almost live, so I'll, I'll tell the story for people who, who may end up listening. So, um, yeah, so there's a, a quote in this interview um, from Kevin uh, from the Flamingos where he says, it's, and I quote, it's far more important to me to have a decent pair of trousers than to eat. And I think you would agree, James, that both you and Jude were not quite as convinced about how important <laughs> good trousers absolutely. were. Yeah. But, um, uh, yeah, he, he's he's absolutely committed to that idea that um, good trousers are more important. And, yeah, I, I mentioned to you that it may be taken sort of 20 or 30 years, but very, very recently uh, I'd gone out and got myself a pair of, uh, sort of tailor-made, bespoke, mohair, mod style, really kind of suede head, skinhead style uh, trousers, uh, cut, but unfortunately, within three months, because I'm a middle-aged man, I was already too fat to fit into them again. So, um, yeah, I, I should have taken Kevin's I advice. Changed everything in that story. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, but what's really interesting though is, beside that article, beside that interview, and I'll um, when I pop this up as a podcast and as a blog, I'll put a, a photograph of the the interview up as well. But beside it, on the second column. There's an advert for Dylan's bookstores where you're getting 25% off music books. And here are the bands that are listed in an article beside uh, the Flamingos. Uh, Pearl Jam, The Lemonheads, Neil Young and Bob Marley. So my final question to you, uh, James, with uh, your music lover and your writer's hat on now, which one of those books do you want 25% off? Pearl Jam, The Lemonheads, Neil Young, or Bob Marley? I'd probably say The Lemonheads in a weird way. I thought he had a couple of good songs, actually, Gando. And I'm trying to think of them, and I'm struggling. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but didn't they do, didn't they have Shame About Ray? Was that the album? Shame About Ray was the album, that's right. I know nothing about The Lemonheads. But Mrs. Robinson, they did the cover of Mrs. Robinson. Yeah, yeah, they did the cover. That was not bad, but he had... Uh, he had a couple of good songs. He had, yeah, he had a couple of good songs. Um, did he do a song called I Lied About Being the Outdoor Type? Do you know That's what? I, I, I don't know, but let's just say that he did because it's a great title. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and he had, some pop, he had some pop sensibilities, you know, he, 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 even though the shirts weren't that great. <laughs> I thought you know. You won't have to look at the shirts if you read it. That's true. Well, listen, James, um, thank you so much for finding a bit of time in your schedule uh, to speak no, to me. No, my pleasure. And, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll definitely be uh, looking out for the book um, and we'll, we'll link to that on the on the blog as well. Memory Songs, A Personal Journey into the Music That Shaped the 90s on Unbound. And I think it's May 17th, is that right? That's right, yeah. That, that's that's pop date. And, um, yeah, I'll be doing, doing some other bits and pieces around that as well. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, we'll look forward Brilliant. to it. Well, thank you. Thank you for inviting me on the show to chat. No problem. Thanks, James. Have a lovely day. Great. Cheers. Bye. Cheers. Bye now. So a huge thank you to James for finding the time to speak with me at such length and in such detail and with such passion. Uh, a great guy. Once again, that book, Memory Songs, is available from Unbound from May the 17th. Uh, check it out. 
and uh, check out mildmanneredarmy.com and find me on Twitter at mildmannermarks. Thanks for listening. Bye.